Let's take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew, the ninth chapter. And we'll be reading our text this morning, beginning in verse 35. Perhaps a passage that's often used in uh, missions conferences and missionary meetings and so forth, and it's an appropriate passage for that, but it's next verses in our study of the book of Matthew, and so we want to consider the Lord of the harvest this morning as we read beginning in verse 35. And Jesus went about all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we pray as we come to this passage of Scripture that we will have uh, attentive ears to hear what it has to say to us. We thank you, Lord, for uh, bringing someone along in our lives uh, to give us the Word of God and the Gospel and to allow us to uh, consider our uh, eternal destiny. And as we think about giving out the Gospel, there are many today who are lost and do not have hope uh, for heaven. And we pray, Lord, that we'll be faithful to give them the gospel and plant the seed that they might uh, come to know Christ as well. Bless our time in the Word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus Christ taught both by precept and by practice. So often, some of the clearest lessons from the gospels are found in the way that Jesus lived in relation to those about him. Uh, while Jesus declared, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost, the gospel writers illustrate the precept by our Lord's practice in proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and calling men and women uh, to repentance. And he demonstrated passionate concern for those who were lost in their sin. And the question comes to us this morning, can we that know the saving grace of God show any less concern for the lost as did our Lord? You know, one of the dangers of facing Christians is that of becoming so comfortable as Christians that we forget what it's like to be separated from, from God. We enjoy the fellowship of other believers and we become comfortable in just talking with them. And yet the teaching and practice of Jesus compels us to get out into the world and to compassionately reach the lost with the gospel. The cry of the gospel harvest lies before us. And the question then is, will we be willing to join the Christian laborers in this harvest? And I think we need to, as we begin this morning, just understand a few basic thoughts uh, as we consider this particular passage. First of all, the Lord uses Christians to reach non-Christians. I've said it before, no doubt you've heard it before. God could have written the gospel in the sky. He could have sent angels to proclaim the gospel. Or He could have spoke audibly from heaven. 
But instead, the Lord has declared us to be His ambassadors with the good news and to be the salt and the light that display through life and through lips the glory of the gospel. Secondly, every Christian has a responsibility as stewards of the gospel. We have a responsibility to join in the cause of global evangelization. The task cannot and must not rest upon just a so-called paid staff in Christian circles. And just as the early Christians joyously lived and they proclaimed the gospel in their communities and beyond, so too we should join in that same practice. Uh, It's the height of selfishness to taste the delights of Christ and offer no morsels to the lost who are around us. There's a third thing we need to consider. We need to uh, realize that we must never hide behind our theology as an excuse for being a worker in the harvest. Some have made the mistake of a so-called biblical theology that says whosoever will be saved will be saved. That mentality smacks of arrogance and certainly shows disobedience, not to mention a complete unconcern for the lost. We need to be aware or beware of having such a tight little package of theological beliefs that we lose sight of the heart of the gospel as good news to men and that is to all men. And then we also must avoid the other extreme of making evangelism a means to impress others of our our spirituality, or to simply uh, be a thing that we do in in a church. The church has suffered greatly under the man-centered ways employed in modern evangelism. Now, if we look at evangelism simply as a means of church growth, then we will stoop to manipulation and easy believism just to pad the rolls. And with these things in mind, I want us to look at the Lord of the harvest for an example of biblical evangelism. Notice, first of all, the method of Christ. The method of Christ. There was nothing haphazard about the methodology of Jesus Christ. We already noted back in Matthew chapter 4 that Jesus traveled throughout Galilee. It says there he traveled teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. He did not do mud wrestling to draw a crowd. He didn't swallow goldfish just or even bring cars or even promise uh, free gift cards and Uh, automobiles to his uh, followers. In fact, uh, that's what some churches, so-called churches, are doing in our day and age. Uh, You come and you uh, get a free gift card, $50 gift card if you come to church Sunday. Uh, Jesus had no gimmicks like that. He demanded, not suggested, an option of obedience. He spoke of the high cost of being a disciple His methodology consisted of teaching, preaching, and healing. And there uh, was simplicity in what our Lord did. Surely the packages might differ from person to person and region to region and culture to culture, but the simple practice of teaching, preaching, and healing commends itself to Christians everywhere as an appropriate way to evangelize. Notice, first of all, teaching. 
This is one of the first things we notice here in this passage. Jesus went all about the cities and villages teaching. Teaching is instruction. Truth understood by the one teaching is conveyed to those who will listen. And as with our Lord, sometimes truth is being clarified, as He often did with the superstitions and the wrong notions of people. Over time, they had developed misconceptions of the nature of God and the promise of the Messiah and the right to use the law. And so Christ's teaching would correct those ideas. Christ would set forth truth and it would be applied to the mind. You know, if one is to teach another, he must first be a learner. And Jesus Christ was a student of the Scriptures. It says in Luke chapter 2 and verse 52, And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature in the favor uh, with God and our man, and with man. Uh, he often quoted Old Testament Scriptures when refuting the fuzziness and the misunderstandings of the people. Uh, he would set the example for each one of us to be students of the Word of God. Now, I realize not everyone can attend seminary or Bible college uh, for intensive uh, classes that they provide, but each one of us should be students of the Word of God. I've met a number of people that have never had a chance to attend seminary, but frankly, they have an understanding of God's Word just as much as a seminary graduate. And so, uh, do not fumble through the excuse box and uh, why you should not be a student of the Word. You can come up all, uh, with all kinds of reasons and excuses, but we need to just do it. If, uh, we're, uh, if you're young, you have a lifetime to dig through the Scriptures, so start now, not later. If you're older, then redeem the time that God has given you by devoting your life to knowing God's Word through thoroughness and accuracy. Now, having made that point, I hasten to encourage us all to be involved in teaching. Now, I do not mean that all of us are going to have a regular teaching ministry. Uh, not all can be Sunday school teachers. Uh, only a small percentage will be involved in that work. But you know what? All of us can be involved in teaching others the Word of God. And by this, I mean if we're faithful in studying the Scripture then we always have something to share with others. It's a matter of using our opportunities to instruct those without understanding the, concerning the nature of God or man or Christ. We need to use our opportunities concerning uh, uh, to correct some of the foolish, superstitious ideas that people grow up believing. And you do not need a classroom to do this. You just need the willingness to plunge right into what God has given you and take that opportunity and be a teacher of the Word of God. You might also create some opportunities at work or at school or in your home. Now, we need to be careful, I think, this and be wise about using work time and teaching as teaching time. Don't uh, cheat your boss or be abusive to other people's time. But there are always ways and there are always times and places that are appropriate to share the gospel and teach others biblical principles. So the first method was teaching. The second one was preaching. It says here that Christ also went about preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Now the gospel of the kingdom has been central to our study of Matthew's gospel. And it refers to the kingly reign of Christ over those embracing the gospel. 
It's both a sphere in which we live, that is God's kingdom and His rule over us, and the Lordship of Christ. The Bible says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Proclamation differs from teaching. Preaching and proclamation differs from teaching in one major way. Both would be involved, uh, involve instruction in the truths of God's word, but preaching or proclamation is the point at which teaching becomes personal. I've heard it said, preaching demands a verdict. It's a call to action. Information is given and applied in teaching, but preaching in a way that has been ordained by our Lord calls for a response. And just as the ancient herald proclaimed the king's declarations calling for action by the people, even so, preaching the word of God does the same. Now, I believe preaching has been minimized in the day in which we live. Preaching and its importance. In its place is entertainment, social commentary, and as I heard someone call it recently, fluff. Churches have too much fluff in them today, and it's taken over the pulpit. But Jesus Christ embraced the proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom as a method by calling for a decisive verdict regarding the gospel. It's an indeed foolishness in the eyes of the world, to say the least, but it's still the means that God has ordained to set forth the gospel and to call for repentance and for faith. And dare we minimize preaching or take it lightly when God has ordained it as the means of calling people to faith in Christ. Instead, let us see preaching of the gospel as an opportunity so to as we work diligently to bring our friends and our relatives and our neighbors and fellow students to our uh, times of biblical preaching. The third method is healing. And we consider the healing work of Christ. We did that last week, but let's think again on what Christ is doing. It says here that He went about teaching and preaching and healing, healing every sickness. As He healed every kind of disease and every kind of sickness, He demonstrated His power over the natural realm. He demonstrated His power, His authority in the overcoming the effects of sin. He demonstrated His concern for humanity and His offering of a foretaste of hope yet before us when all sin will be removed. Now what Christ was doing, we cannot imitate to that same degree. Uh, I can't bring you up here and heal you. That's just not, uh, that's not a biblical uh, method here. That's something that Christ can do. Jesus Christ is the great physician. But you know what? We can show compassion for the hurts of humanity. We can pray for those who are in need. We can use our resources and our means that God has given to us to minister to the needs of others. And in doing so, we must recognize that even as Christ, uh, even as with Christ, this part of, of the whole work of the gospel, uh, as He has given to us the opportunity, everyone healed did not become a disciple of Christ. Yet Christ ministered to them anyway, showing a true love for others that, were, they were, uh, that was willing to give without expecting anything in return. 
And do we not demonstrate the reality of the gospel at this just this point? Christ does not call us into a sterile environment in which we teach and preach and then quickly move away, but He's called us to dirty our hands with the needs of others so that God's love might radiate through us even as we proclaim the gospel. That, that was Christ's method. Secondly, I want you to notice the sensitivity of Christ. The sensitivity of Christ. Christian outreach can become canned and cold if we do not guard our hearts. You know, sometimes the motivation for reaching baptismal goals or carrying our certain evangelistic strategies or embarking on evangelism programs lacks the kind of sensitivity that Christ exemplified. We do well to look at our Lord and plead with Him to reproduce that same sensitivity for the loss that He carried. Notice, first of all, a shepherdless sheep. A shepherdless sheep. And the description of the multitudes here is sheep having no shepherd. Now that was a common theme in the Old Testament. Ezekiel and Zechariah both reproved the unfaithful shepherds of Israel. They're supposed spiritual leaders for leaving the flocks in deplorable condition. Micaiah uh, prophesied to an unfortunate alliance between Ahab of Israel and Jehoshaphat of Judah. It says in 1 Kings 22, verse 17, I saw all Israel scattered upon the hills as sheep that have no shepherd. Isaiah describes our sinful condition as all we like sheep have gone astray. Isaiah 53, 6. And in the case of our text here, the shepherdless sheep are due to the failure of the scribes and the Pharisees to teach the people the way of God. They laid heavy burdens of legalism on the, sh the shoulders of the people, but failed to teach them the way of grace and truth. Now Christ saw the people as those who fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Now the first term there uh, that's used refers to the weariness and the fatigue which results from labor and being burdened. He saw the people as burdened with the rites of religion and the doctrines of the Pharisees. They were sinking down under their ignorance and the weight of their traditions. They were neglected by so-called enlightened teachers. And then he says they, were faint, they fainted and were scattered abroad. That second phrase there speaks of being driven out or cast out without any care. Uh, these people had been spiritually abused by the religious leaders' failure to teach them the way of God. And thus they were lying helpless under the load of guilt and ignorance and confusion. The religious leaders did not enter the kingdom and they did their best to keep others out as well. And I think there are many religious leaders today who are still endeavoring to keep people out of the kingdom rather than get people into the kingdom. They do it by distorting and contradicting God's word, perverting the way of salvation. They still keep them from the true shepherd by telling people that they're already saved because, you know, a good God would never condemn anyone to hell. Well, then they lead people to be content with themselves and they see no need for repentance and salvation. And thereby they shut the door, the gracious door of God that He has provided. Or when people are told that they can work their way to God, 
by avoiding certain sins or performing certain good deeds or participating in some prescribed ritual, they are likewise deceived and left hopeless. They are shepherdless sheep. Notice, secondly, a compassionate observer. A compassionate observer. Consider the difference with Jesus Christ. Look again at verse 36. But, here's the contrast. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Jesus Christ saw men for what they really were. Uh, His uh, gaze pierced through the facade and the pretense and settled upon the reality of their lives. It says he felt compassion for them. That term suggests the idea that deep in his his gut, if you please, he felt the anguish of their soul. Down deep, he felt anguish in his soul. They may have laughed and talked, but he saw it all as deep emotion welling within for their spiritual condition. Spurgeon puts it this way, his sympathies were awakened. He could not look upon a mass of men without an indifferent countenance, for the inmost soul was stirred. The idea is what Christ saw moved him into a, to a tenderness and a pity. I wonder, have you ever felt the burden of Christ? Maybe you've had opportunity to be in a huge stadium or arena with thousands of people talking or cheering, but in your heart you knew, you, uh, you knew that in this massive crowd there were few that knew Christ as their Savior. Go to the mall sometime and just sit there and watch people. How many are concerned about their souls? Or go to a sporting event and watch as hundreds and thousands of people move about. How many of them come to terms, have come to terms with their mortality and in, with eternity? How many realize that they were created for the glory of God? Or how we need to pray that the Lord might give us something of His eyes to see people and His heart to feel compassion for these lost We need to see men for what they are rather than admiring their position or their status or their wardrobe or their education or bemoaning their lack of these things. Let us see them as men and women without Christ and so without hope. And until we know something of the passion of Christ, we can mechanically go through evangelism, but that's not biblical evangelism. Or we can feel guilty because we're not doing and then uh, what we're not doing and then follow someone's prescribed steps of evangelism or uh, ministry. Or we can withdraw into our little group of Christians and we can feel safe again from the thought of carrying the gospel to the world. Let's not take the low road. Let's study the compassion of Christ and ask Him to reproduce it in our own lives. So we see the method, we see the sensitivity. And then thirdly, the challenge of Christ. The challenge of Christ. Now these are familiar words, some of the best known of the gospel. Look at verse 37 and 38 again. Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. There is both optimism and pessimism here. Those of you that have grown up on a farm, you know the best harvest means nothing if you lack the means to reap it. Harvests do not last forever. 
So the workers must busy themselves uh, before the weather or the vermin uh, steps in and spoils it. Now, I do not want to make undue emphasis on this, but we do want to understand that Christ sets forth both a great possibility and a great need, all wrapped up in urgency. Notice, first of all, the challenge of the harvest. The harvest here refers to those in need of the gospel. The harvest signifies not, as some would explain, the elect, those who actually are saved, uh, will be saved, but men in general who, unless gathered and saved, will perish like the wheat that, a wheat that is not reaped. Our concern must be for the harvest, which is another way of saying the world. Christ was not paralleling this to the mass of people that would be saved. Instead, he uses the metaphor here to elevate our imaginations to think upon the vastness of lostness and the potential for gospel witness. It's like the harvest field that will spoil unless we get some workers to get to work. We have 7 billion people in the world 7 billion people in the world. Can we venture a guess how big the harvest will be? You know, there are almost 4.2 billion that have nothing to do with Christianity. And out of that, the 2, two billion will make some gesture toward Christianity. Most of them are clueless concerning the gospel. And I think the point is quite clear. We do not have to look very far to find the harvest fields that are desperately needing workers. The harvest is plenteous. And like Jesus Christ, we must see the harvest fields as faint and scattered like sheep without a shepherd. Think of the billion people in India trapped in Hinduism and Islam. Consider the hundreds of millions that have culturally adopted Buddhism and Islam and Sikhism and dozens of other religions. Think about Europe, the center of Christianity for several hundred years and how some of its largest countries have less than 1% of what we would know call evangelical believers. How the multiplied millions in Latin America that blend in with Catholicism and animism. And then let's ask the Lord to see the world about us as a harvest that desperately needs workers. I want you to also notice there that it's His harvest. The world belongs to Him. He calls upon us to feel compassion with Him and labor in His harvest. And the assurance of Christ is that if laborers go, they will find a harvest. Like William Carey and Adoniram Judson, we may have to labor long and hard, but the harvest day will come. It is His har harvest and He will give fruits for the labor. We see here the challenge of the harvest. But secondly, notice the challenge of the laborers. Who are the laborers that are so few? Well, they're the disciples of Jesus Christ that He is ready to send into the harvest. Now, as we get... In further into our study in the next chapter. It's going to illustrate this very clearly as Christ calls on the twelve. He calls the twelve to Himself. He sends them out to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. 
chapter 10, verse 6. And compared to the harvest, the laborers are few. But multiply the laborers, and you multiply what is reaped in the harvest. The laborers are the gospel messengers that carry the good news of the kingdom into the harvest fields, teaching, preaching, and healing. There's no hesitation here by our Lord to exhort us to pray for more workers to head into the fields, to go into the world with a view of reaping the harvest uh, that's there. And this is where we must see ourselves as laborers, willing and ready to go into the harvest fields. Each one of us has something to contribute. Engaging in gospel conversations, starting a Bible study in your home, speaking to your fellow workers at the lunch table about spiritual matters, leaving a gospel track or booklet or tape or CD that explains the gospel with a friend or with a co-worker. All of these things and much, much more contribute to the gospel harvest. And we must see ourselves as laborers in the harvest. It's very easy to see someone that is a missionary or an evangelist or a pastor as workers, and they are, but we must see ourselves as doing our part in the work. And don't worry if your part is not as large as someone else's. Don't worry by comparing yourself to someone else. Uh, do, do what you can for the glory of Christ, and that is enough. And not only is there the challenge of the harvest and the challenge of labors, but then in the last verse, we see the challenge of prayer. God has willed that His miraculous work of harvesting must be preceded by prayer. Upon seeing the plentiful harvest and the few workers, Jesus commands, Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that He will send forth labors into His harvest. Are we so concerned about the harvest and the scarcity of workers that we pray regularly for the Lord to raise up missionaries and ministers and Christian workers? The therefore implies the reality of the need has struck us so that we must act. And the action called for is prayer. Pray for the Lord to send out, literally thrust out workers into His harvest. And with the rise of paganism and Islam and nominal Christianity and apathy and spiritual confusion and a host of other things, there's never been a greater necessity for the offering of this prayer. I wonder this morning, will you ask the Lord of the harvest to send forth laborers into His harvest? Will you volunteer for duty yourself? We need to be merciful or mindful of the harvest as we go about our lives. Think about it when you get up in the morning. Lord, uh, pray, uh, I pray for uh, labors and help one of those labors to be me today. And let's be mindful that we are workers being sent forth by our Lord. Let's have our, our heads bowed and our eyes closed this morning as we think this morning of what this passage is talking about. Father in heaven, we, we come to before you and we know that the gospel is a wonderful part of the, the Word of God. It's the good news. It's the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the payment for the penalty of sin. And without believing the gospel, without uh, uh, trusting Christ as our personal Savior, then we have no hope. And there are millions, yeah, billions of people in this world today that have no hope. There are many who have 
many millions of people who do not have the Word of God in their language. They have no missionary coming to their country or to their people. And we pray, Lord, that uh, we will be faithful first to pray. And then, Lord, as you lead and direct in our lives, that you will direct us to uh, be a, a laborer in that harvest, starting in our own homes, in our own neighborhoods, in our own places of business and, and uh, uh, in school. Lord, help us to be faithful to do the work that you've called us to. We pray, Lord, that you'll put the soul of someone upon our heart each and every day that we might pray for them and if we have opportunity, speak to them. But more, most of all, Lord, we just pray that we'll be used of you as a laborer in your harvest. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.